Well, would you please uh, turn with me, if you have a copy of God's Word, to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. I believe the, the words will also be on the screen as, as I read this passage to you. Galatians, chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 14. Galatians 3, uh, beginning at verse 1. Uh, this is God's Word. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain, so again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. He said, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, as we have read your word, we have heard your very voice speaking to us. Not my voice, but the voice of the Spirit. The same Spirit that inspired this passage, we believe is now working in our hearts to help us understand it, to help us hear it, to help us apply it to our lives. So we pray that you would work in this next uh, chunk of time, that we would hear your word and that we would believe the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably hundreds of times a day, someone tries to get you to buy something or watch something or read something or do something or believe something using a strategic display of emotion. Emotionally charged rhetoric is kind of how our culture communicates and reasons with one another. And th there is something essentially you know, human about that. Uh, human emotion is very compelling. And it's, it's not necessarily the best way to communicate or reason with one another, but it's, it tends to be the most, or one of the most compelling ways to get you to believe something. So, for example, I was listening to a sermon uh, that was preached by a friend of mine who's also a pastor. Uh, this was a few months ago now. And I was just listening to the audio of the sermon. I wasn't there. Uh, he, he's in another state. 
Uh, and I, I was doing it as I was just answering emails. I figured, you know, I, I have some sort of background space noise uh, to, to fill up in my head while I'm doing this work. So I'm going to listen to a sermon and, you know, get a little bit of side edification in that while I answer my emails. But just three minutes into the audio, it, actually, he couldn't get through reading the passage. He started weeping. And, and what that did for me as the listener is I couldn't focus on my emails anymore because his, his emotion had drawn me into what he was saying. It, and it almost felt like a betrayal to treat the, the grief and, and the strong feelings of a close friend as background noise while I answered my emails. So for the sake of productivity, I turned the sermon off and continued answering emails and had to come back later to the sermon. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I, I think if you were there in Galatia 2,000 years ago, when this letter was first read, and, and we got to this point, to chapter 3, verse 1, you would have had a similar experience. Because what Paul does here is he ratchets up the emotional volume of his communication. It's so that his emotional communication here is itself a communication that what he's saying really matters. Justification by faith alone in Jesus really matters. In other words, the mechanics of how you believe in God and how God accepts you or not and what you think about how God thinks about you is worth getting fired up over. So my hope for our time this morning is simply to renew some of that passion in you so, so that you would be passionate for the gospel so that you could live in its freedom. Be passionate for the gospel so that you can live in its freedom. We're going to see that under three headings today. First of all, the gospel simplicity. Secondly, the gospel's history. And thirdly, the gospel's promise. So first of all, the gospel's simplicity. You know, the gospel is beautifully simple. Uh, and, and the problem in Galatia 2,000 years ago is that there were false teachers that, that had arisen, uh, and they were making it way too complicated. They were saying something like, you know, God forgives us and accepts us by faith in Jesus but you also have to keep all of the law, all of the Old Testament law. So your faith in Jesus, Jesus essentially, is not enough. You have to add to Jesus your whole life long to stay accepted and forgiven. And the Galatians found that compelling. They, they started to believe that. And that's why Paul gets emotional. What does, what, what does Paul think about all this? What? Are you crazy, Galatians? You should know way better than this. Have you lost all of your spiritual judgment? And then he says, don't you remember when I preached Jesus crucified to you? And he, he's, he's trying to jog their memory. He's reminding them of the Son of God hanging on a cross, redeeming them from sin and reconciling them to God. Because, you see, there, there can be no other way to have God's acceptance. And it has to be that way alone. And why would you want something else? That's what Paul is saying. Why would you want anything else? So then he goes into verse 2 and he says, okay, Galatians, I have one question for you. And then he goes on to ask five, which, which is a bit disorienting to read. It was probably disorienting for them to hear, but that's part of Paul's effect. That's part of his intention. He's using a device that was called diatribe, and we, we still use that word today, maybe not as specifically as what Paul is doing here. There's a slew of rhetorical questions one after another that's meant to sort of destabilize a position, and uh, the, these, these questions have fairly obvious answers, and they're meant to just hammer home 
one main point. So it, it, it reminds me of the first time that I ever went swimming in the ocean. Uh, it was the Atlantic Ocean uh, uh, just a few years ago. Um, yeah, I, I waded in and I thought, wow, it, it's, a, it's a hot summer day. That looks like really inviting water. So I, I waded into the, the water thinking that I'd have a really great time swimming. I, I got into about waist height and then a wave hit me. And I was like, whoa, that's destabilizing. But before I could you know, quite get my bearings again, another wave hit me and this time it knocked me over in the water. And I, was, and I tried to get back up again, but then another wave hit me and now I'm flipping over and spinning in the water and I'm really destabilized and I had to sort of like crawl my way to shallower water because the confidence with which I walked into the water thinking that I would be able to stand was totally undone by the waves that kept coming at me. And, and that's what Paul is doing. Wave upon wave, each question more destabilizing than the last, hammering home his point. He's saying, Galatians, do you think you began your journey with Christ by works or by faith? Well, by faith. Well, having begun by faith, do you think you're really going to grow by works? Well, no, probably by faith. Well, do you really think that God has blessed you and blessed your church and your ministry by works or by faith? Well, faith. It's faith. And, and, and it's so easy to complicate that. Sure, grace got me in the door. But while I'm in the door, while I'm in God's kingdom, there's got to be something I can do, something else that I can take control of. There's got to be something else we feel. And so then something comes along like this teaching that seems to answer all of those questions, laying out the laws and the commandments that you can do. Finally, something to do. So finally, an insurance policy to have on my faith, on my life with God, so that I can know that I'm okay. And, and, and we easily believe that as well. But the reality is that your faith is actually threatened by anything that you add to your faith in Christ alone. And a timeless example of something that we add to our faith is our perceived moral performance. Uh, so, so what do you think makes you acceptable to God. What makes you acceptable to God and what made you acceptable to God this last week? Was it that you didn't look at porn last week or you didn't drink too much or, or, or you were really good about reading your Bible every day or most days? Or maybe it's that you were really diligent about recycling and you didn't have a single racist thought this last week. And, and you know, really, I, I hope that you are all those things, but it's not because those things justify us or add to our justification in any way. It's not how we grow as a Christian. What you need in order to grow as a Christian is the same thing that justifies you. Faith in Jesus. Never works, but faith in Christ, faith in Christ. Because his grace is a gift that, that God gives and you cannot buy and he gives it freely. And that's the beautiful simplicity of the gospel. It's that when you enter in you're given the ability to stand against the waves. The, the, the previous waves of God's wrath now become this amazing ocean of God's grace that you can dive in and swim in and grow deeper and deeper the rest of your life. And because it's by faith, we can't complicate it. We just can't. The second point that Paul 
goes into is the gospel's history. So the gospel's simplicity and now the gospel's history. Grace, God's grace, is not just some kind of nebulous spiritual principle that exists out there. Uh, it, it's rooted in history. And, and, and Paul's, uh, Paul tries to prove that. You see, the Jews, they were really good at connecting their uh, religious life to their history. Uh, because their religious life essentially was their history, their national and cultural history, even. You know, the, this, this phrase that's used in the passage, the works of the law, it wasn't just some kind of nebulous spiritual principle out there. It was the most enduring marker of their society. They believed that the Torah, the law that God gave them to guide their entire life, was his greatest gift to all humanity, and guess what? He gave it to them. And that makes them this special people. Now, this is a, an important dynamic to see because it's true for us too, although maybe it, it looks a lot differently. Because it's impossible for us to isolate our morality, the way that we see or that we think that God accepts us, it's impossible to isolate that from our culture and our communities. So let me tease that out a bit. You know, Paul makes this genius move in the passage in, in verse 6 where he brings up Abraham. And he does that because Abraham is this significant historical figure in the Jewish faith, a, a trailblazing forerunner, basically. Uh, the, the original recipient of so many of the, the promises and the covenants uh, that God gave them that shaped their culture. And so naturally, you can understand why Jews for centuries after would look at Abraham and say, okay, the degree to which we follow exactly to the letter of the law, Abraham and his descendants, is the degree to which we are accepted and blessed by God. Period. And, and that's, that's the end of the story. And Jesus is nice, he fits in there somewhere, but obeying the law, because that's the, the gospel of Abraham, so to speak. But Paul is saying, no, you've actually got to relearn your religious history. In fact, he retells it. He goes back to Genesis. He quotes Genesis 12 uh, in, in, in verse 6 of our passage, and he says that God already counted Abraham righteous on account of his faith. And then in verse 8 of our passage, Paul quotes from Genesis 15, a couple chapters later, where God promises to bless the nations through Abraham. All of this before Abraham even had an opportunity to obey some of those covenant uh, laws that God gave him. So what that means is God graciously chose Abraham, justified him, and promised the gospel to him before he ever earned it. And so for God's people, law-keeping has never meant to function as an entrance exam into God's kingdom. Instead, because of the gospel of grace, the only requirement is to receive it by faith as a gift. Therefore, as Paul says, to have faith equals being a child of Abraham. Which, of course, is a huge statement to a mixed Jewish and Gentile audience. But he goes one further. He says the scripture... Uh, this, is, this is in verse 8. Uh, let me quote it from the, the NIV. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. And what that means is that the Jewish nation existed, not so that more and more people could come under the national and cultural umbrella of Israel, but instead so that the faith in God that grounded everything they were meant to be would go out and spread to the nation. And you see, our gospel history 
is that Jesus did that, and that he is working that in our church and in his church around the world right now. The fact that his church has gone to the whole world is evidence that he has accomplished that by faith in him. So here's a a big question for us. How do you build a culture and an identity for a church? I think the answer is faith in Christ, faith in Christ, faith in Christ. And if you add anything to that, it creates a crippling spiritual cancer in your church. Think about the, uh, the personal religious histories of the Galatians from 2000 years ago. Before they believed in Christ, they had a pantheon of uh, Greek and Roman gods who, who didn't really love them. They were kind of capricious. Uh, they, they, they needed to, appe- to be appeased by sacrifices and by doing things for them, and then they would bless you if you twisted their arm enough. But the Jews, on the other hand, they rightly reveled in the fact that they had an infinite and eternal God who, who loved them and chose them by grace. But the irony is that when the Jews require the Gentiles to obey their law in order to get into God's kingdom, they're basically asking them to treat the true God like they used to treat their old gods. And we can do that kind of thing in our churches if we make anything else more important than grace. So think about your church, Jordan Valley Church for a minute. This church has been around for a few years. Uh, It's had ups and downs. But but that's all part of it, right? You, You could say that you're on a journey to know Christ. In fact, you do say that you're on a journey to know Christ. And over those years, as you've journeyed together, it's left a mark. It's left a mark on this church. It's left a mark on you, on your community. And that means there is a distinct culture here that makes it different from other churches. And you know, some of you, you might be new to this church and you might still be figuring that out. Some of you have been here maybe uh, for a long time or since the beginning and you've seen all the changes and, and, and being at Jordan Valley Church just feels, like, just feels like breathing. It feels natural, it's normal. And because there's such a distinct culture here and that's unmistakable, it, I think it's possible to make one of two mistakes. First of all, is to let your own church's history or tradition uh, kind of become a source of pride for you and and, and to make that more important or as important as the gospel of Jesus. And so then you make fitting into whatever, you make make fitting into that, sort of uh, meeting and, and fitting into that mold that has been set more important or just as important as believing in the gospel. Or on the other hand, you can go the other way and you can ignore your church's history, ignore where you've been and say, actually, we need to change in this certain direction. We need to become this kind of church. We need to go in, in, in this way and a new mission, a, a new, a fancy way to do things becomes the bar to clear in order to have acceptance in this community. But you see, if, if, if you go either of those two ways, Anytime anything, not inherently the gospel itself, or naturally arising out of it, is made as primary as the gospel, it confuses the church's gospel in the first place. Now, I, I don't know exactly like which temptation is going to be more uh, dangerous or compelling for you to struggle with. That might be something that, that you need to figure out for yourself. 
But either way, I think the, a really good goal for you to prayerfully consider is on the one hand, you need to celebrate your church's history, where God has uh, brought you and, and, and how he has worked and moved. But also, you need to consider the ways that your church needs to continually be reforming according to the gospel. Because the truth is, the gospel of God's grace in Jesus will outlive your church's culture. It, it will outlive the founders of this church. It will outlive its current leaders. But, and it will continue to move and work in the world. And that means the only cultural marker that matters is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, well, you know, I, I don't believe in God, or I don't really think that God cares all that much about this stuff. I, I sort of doubt that I even need to be accepted by him in the first place. So does this really apply to me? I'm not, I'm, I'm not really set on church in the first place. So does this really apply to me? Well, I think it does, actually. Let me ask you this question. What is your desired community? You don't even have to pick a church. What is your desired community? Is it a family? Uh, uh, a circle of friends? Your coworkers? The school board? An online gaming platform? Um, who do you want to be accepted by? All of those communities have a set culture and identity. Maybe it was set centuries ago. Maybe it was set last week. But there are ways that you need to act and believe and think and walk and talk in order to be accepted in all kinds of different communities. And I imagine that you are willing to bend to fit in. It's just kind of natural. And the more you want to fit in, the more you'll be willing to bend. So what is your anxiety level this morning? Because you fear that you're not fitting into the places that you want to be fitting into. Have you compromised recently on, on any beliefs? Uh, on, on, on something that you used to hold dear in order to fit into a community or a group of people? How, how much blood do they require you to give in order to stay in? Have you bled enough for the people that you want to be a part of? Let me tell you this. If, if you step out of line... And if you become what your desired community doesn't want you to be, there won't be grace for you. There will only be curse. The curse of silence, alienation, even cancellation. That happens all over the place these days. And that's how the ancient pagan religions did it. That's how the Jews did it when they were getting it wrong. Even over the history of the church, the church has got it wrong and done it that way. And unfortunately, when we get it wrong, we can act that way. And that's certainly how our modern culture acts in many ways. But Paul wants to free us from that kind of slavery. He wants to free us from it. And that's why he tells us the gospel's promise. That's our third and final point this morning. The gospel's promise. You see, Paul makes another shocking statement when he goes into verse 10. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, that's shocking because if you're a Jew, think about how incredibly offensive that is. Remember, God gave you and your people the law, and that's the greatest gift that he's given to mankind. 
And Paul is saying, actually, that greatest gift is cursing you. <laughs> which, which is wild. It would have blown their minds and made them really angry. And, and in one sense, it's easy to see how they would think the Gentiles are cursed because they don't have the law. They don't have the cultural advantage that the Jews have. So surely, if you're going to pick a people to identify with, pick the Jews, because that gives you a fighting chance. But Paul says, no, that's not how you need to see this. So once again, he goes to the Old Testament Jewish scriptures to prove that that's not how to be accepted by God. He says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now, it's really important to get this. The curse of the law, as Paul talks about it here, does not mean that the law itself is cursed or evil or flawed in any way. It's perfect. It came from God. The curse of the law is that you and I are cursed and evil and flawed and broken because the law is good, but we have broken it in our sin. So in, in a way, the law is kind of like an entrance exam into God's kingdom. The only problem is we've all failed. If you've trusted in your own goodness, then, however you define goodness, even if it's God's law, you failed. If you're running around a track trying to win God's favor and acceptance by your own foot speed, you've already lost the race. It doesn't matter if you had a religious and cultural head start. The race was over before you started running. There's no point in trying to justify yourself because you can't. As it stands then, God's law only condemns. And that is the curse of the law. That's the curse of the law. Now, if, if you're one of those that's been around this church for a while, you, you might be sort of switching off right now because you've heard this part before and you know where I'm going. You know that I'm going to talk about the gospel and how Jesus redeemed us from the curse. But don't, don't switch off. Fight that urge because it's really important that you get, once again, that you're reminded of the futility of trying to justify yourself. Because as usual, you're going to hear how great grace is, but you're going to go out tomorrow and you're going to try and justify yourself again. And then you're going to be left feeling, oh, man, I did it again. And you're going to need somewhere to go. So, so listen up. And then on the other hand, if, if you're sitting there like, okay, now this is really crazy. He's talking about a curse, that God has cursed me because I haven't obeyed the law. That's crazy. Why would anyone believe in something so depressing? But before you walk out the door, I want you to hear two things. First of all, don't just discount something because it's hard to hear and maybe because you don't want to believe it. If something here rings true experientially for you, especially if it rings true like that, don't ignore it. And if it brings up further questions or doubts for you, then pursue those. Ask those questions. Don't ignore this, because if there is truly a God who does require something of you and you have broken his law and are under the curse, don't ignore what I'm saying. Because secondly, the reason we're told about the curse in Scripture almost always is because we're about to be told about how we can be freed from it. And that's exactly what Paul does here when he goes on into verse 
13. And he says this gospel truth. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Do you see what Paul is doing here? This is really cool. He's saying to the Galatians, listen, you are in danger of the curse because you are walking out on Christ, walking out on the gospel, which you once believed. So what is the solution to this? It's stop running, stop running that race, go into the grandstands and watch as I preach Christ crucified again. Paul goes right back to the cross, dragging the Galatians with him and says, look, look there, look to Christ. That is your justification because the curse that once lay on you for your law-breaking was laying on him. It was put on him so that you're not cursed anymore. And the righteousness that burst out of every fiber of Jesus' perfect being is now given to us as that gift of grace that we receive by faith. So the gospel, it's simple, right? It's simple. That even when you ruin it by adding to it, The way out of being ruined is to look back to Jesus. If you want to be justified then, rely on Christ. If you want to grow in your faith, rely on Christ. If you want to be a good person, rely on Christ. Remove from your mind any image of yourself running around that track to gain God's acceptance. That track will lead to death. Instead, replace it with the image of Jesus running around the track for you. And as he runs, he is carrying you. He's carrying you. He is good enough. He is fast enough. He has already won the race and he carries us right into the presence of the father. And he says, "Father, here are your sons and daughters who you sent me to save, and I have accomplished that. I have saved them. They are yours. They are adopted into your family." They are beautiful. So accept them, Father. And then it's almost as though we can hear the Father say back to Jesus, Amen. Yes, my son, these are the sons and daughters that I have loved from before the foundation of the world. I've chosen them. I sent you to save them. And now because of you, when I look at them, I see you, Jesus, reflected in them. They are my delight and I will be their God. Forever. That is how God the Father thinks about you and me because of Jesus. And so when we receive that, there is no better justification than that. That is the better way. That's the better way for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To be redeemed is to be free. And in Jesus, we get to walk in true freedom. So, walk only in that freedom. Amen. Let's let's pray. Our God, help us to believe that you have made us free in Christ and that he has fully accomplished it, that he has done everything so that when we get up to live our Christian life, we're not relying on ourselves anymore. Help us to rely on Jesus alone. Give us your spirit and help us to believe, to believe simply that Christ 
uh, is for us, and therefore who can be against us. In his name we pray. Amen.